it's now three past the hour, so I might kick off um, because I think we have a a pretty good group online now. Um, and so I would like to start by saying welcome to the Community Matters Local Economy Conference call. It's really great to have everyone on the line. We had a really um, great response to, to this call um, with over 65 people responding to, to be part of it. Um, a few people can't make it and really wanted to be able to be part of the conversation. So we've, we're going to be recording this call. Um, so just keep that one in mind. Uh, and we'll be making that available to through the Community Matters blog. My name is Bonnie Shaw, uh, and I'll be moderating today. And joining me are Charles Marone from the Urban Growth Institute, Chris Markison from Pueblo County and the Economic Gardening Project, and Hamilton Smith-Jones from Operation Reach and the Gulf South Biodiesel Project. I just want to go through a little bit of housekeeping before we get stuck into the conversation. Um, we have an agenda covering to uh, to Charles, Chris, and Hamilton. Um, and then we're going to open up for some questions and discussion. Now, because we have so many people on the call, uh, what I'm going to ask everyone to do is open up the Google Doc that we made available and to write your questions into the Google Doc. And there are a bunch of questions coming in already, uh, really fantastic, detailed questions that um, we're really looking forward to getting stuck into. Um, and so it would be great if you could write down your questions uh, and put your name to them. And then if you'd like to comment or, um, or add some of your own experience to the discussion around those questions, throw your name next to it, and I will try and get to you to add some comments when we get on to that question, um, if that makes sense to everybody. Uh, now, if we don't get to everyone today, um, it would be great if you could uh, add, your, add your comments and uh, we'll collect everything that we that we hear today and we will try and get back and address that at a later date. We're going to wrap up today with uh, a few minutes of conversation around uh, how this format of communication really works for people. It's a conference call, a, a great idea, um, and see if there are any other ways that you would really like some support in furthering your work around these issues. Um, and so that's that's it from me for now. I'm going to hand over right now to Charles from the Urban Growth Institute to tell us a little bit about his work. Thanks, Bonnie. And um, just uh, just to, to do a slight correction, we're the Community Growth Institute that is the place that I work for. Um, and it's, in a sense, the exact opposite of urban growth. We deal exclusively with small towns and rural areas. Uh, my background is a civil engineer. Uh, I've been working with small towns for 15 years now. And back in my days as a civil engineer, I realized that, that most of the planning that is done in small towns is based around infrastructure and based around uh, engineering projects, specifically ones that are done with large federal and state subsidies. Having worked on that side of the equation, just growing to understand that our problems in small towns will not be solved by outside of them. Uh, we started Community Growth Institute in 2000, uh, myself and some colleagues of mine, and then last year we started a nonprofit organization called Strong Towns to look more deeply at that connection between infrastructure and land use. Uh, so many times at the local level we're looking to do economic development. Uh, we call our engineer or we call uh, our grants writer or we try to get someone in to uh, basically get us something for nothing or something at very low cost, when in reality the most resilient model that is out there is one that builds from within. Uh, it is slower. Uh, it takes a little bit more elbow grease. Uh, things don't come quite as easily, especially at first. But over the long term, this is the way that we've historically built strong towns in this country, and uh, it's the way that we advocate and work with local communities to do. So I'm, I'm looking forward to answering the questions and the rest of the conversation here today. Fantastic. Thank you, Chuck. And my apologies uh, for the mispronunciation of your name there. Um, the next one we're going to hear from is uh, Chris Martinson. Chris, if you want to tell us a little bit about your work in Pueblo. Sure. Um, thanks for having me on the call, Bonnie. Uh, my name is Chris Marcus, and I'm the GIS, the Geographic Information Systems Manager for 
Pueblo County, Colorado. Um, we're a town of about 100,000 people, and uh, like everybody else, we've been facing economic um, struggles for some time. You know, if you, a little background on Pueblo, we, we are a, uh, a steel town. At one time, it was called the Pittsburgh of the West. And like uh, other towns with the same character, you know, the Pueblo has had several up and down uh, boom and bust cycles. So um, we did a, a, some, a variety of research and, and came upon a program that has been actually being developed for about 20 years, and there are many incarnations of it nationwide, and actually a few um, internationally, too, uh, that basically it's a, a program called economic gardening. And economic gardening uh, in, its, in its structure, it, it turns traditional economic development upside down. Basically what it does is instead of uh, going out to other communities and trying to poach a community, a job, uh, a company or jobs from other communities to entice them to move to your town, what it does is it empowers um, and, and provides information and tools and community um, support for businesses that are local. Um, and those businesses um, the, have the, our intent is that they take a look at how they can be a key component to a, a community's economy. Um, so basically what we end up doing is helping and ed educating business owners on uh, finding ways that, they, that their industry can become a primary job um, in industry focused in, in nature. And it, primary jobs are a pretty good uh, uh, indication um, of traditional economic development, folks. Um, basically what a primary job is, is is that any job that is producing goods or services that are being sold someplace else outside of your own geopolitical boundary. Uh, so we, using geographic information systems and some other market intelligence information and so forth, um, we are able to uh, help businesses find who their customers are, what makes them tick, and find people that are just like them and um, intelligently procure business uh, from across the country. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. That's, uh, that's, that's really informative. Um, Hamilton, do you want to take it away and give us a little background about the project you're working on and your work with Operation Reach? Absolutely. Thank you, Bonnie. So my name is Hamilton Simons-Jones, and I'm the Chief Development Officer for Operation Reach, and I apologize if I sound a little congested. I'm, I'm hopefully at the tail end of a cold here. Um, Operation Reach is actually a nonprofit based in New Orleans, and, you know, for the last 11 years, we've been doing uh, youth programs, and, you know, by uh, most quality of life indicators, we have some of the greatest challenges in our community, as we do anywhere in the country, really, with uh, education and youth development. But we, um, about two years ago, got into um, looking at developing social enterprises that meet local community needs and um, really can be self-sustaining. And the one I want to talk about today is our youth biodiesel project. And we actually did research and went and visited a number of different biodiesel programs all across the country um, and found that, you know, in many instances people were growing, growing um, corn and other feedstocks as far away as India, getting the oil from it, shipping it to the U.S. to make biodiesel, and then, you know, generating, you know, selling that biodiesel anywhere across the world. But what we really found is that for, you know, biodiesel and all of the environmental and community benefits of it, it really works best as a regional, a regional enterprise. So we, you know, in New Orleans where, you know, our primary, um, our primary industries have really been oil and gas and tourism, and, our, you know, we're known for our restaurants and all of our uh, great obesity rates that come along with all the food we fry, we really looked at the um, opportunity to convert used cooking oil into biodiesel fuel and really build um, a particularly local and regional market for that so that everything going into the fuel and the usage of the fuel is all in this um, greater New Orleans area. So, um, and we've actually, it's been interesting because, you know, we're still in a fairly early stage. We're scaling up now to be able to do about 125,000 gallons a year. Um, and we have far more than that committed from local restaurants who, for them, it's an easy alternative. We're a nonprofit, so it's tax-deductible donation of their cooking oil. 
and they get a little extra bonus that says, hey, we're participating in a good cause, and then, you know, Operation Reach sends them customers by, you know, the promotion of our project. And then um, it's interesting that one of our main markets for the biodiesel fuel is we've made it a point that the biodiesel fuel is, you know, sold at the equivalent of what diesel fuel would cost, so there's no extra cost to be able to, um, you know, run a greener fleet. And that the biodiesel, um, the, one of the biggest markets we've had is actually there's a growing kind of Hollywood South apparatus here in New Orleans. There's a number of tax incentives that have been passed in the state. And a lot of these, um, the, um, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? But basically the producers and the, the um, major companies out of L.A., have all of these pledges to go green in various ways, but then they get to a place like New Orleans and there's very little infrastructure here for them to do it. So for us to be able to run these various trucks and um, equipment off of biodiesel fuel and biodiesel generators is a real, a real added value for these guys who have said they want to go green but don't have the infrastructure in a community like this to do it. Um, so, I mean, that's just a real brief overview of, of our work, and I look forward to taking more uh, questions and deeper discussion about it. Thanks, Hamilton. That's fantastic. Uh, it's a really inspiring project. Um, so now uh, what we're going to do now that our three experts uh, on the line have introduced themselves and talked a little bit more about their projects, I'm going to dive into some of these fantastic questions that are coming in through the Google Doc. Um, and... What we're going to do, I'll throw these to to Chris, Charles, and, and Hamilton um, to start with, and then if anybody has anything to uh, to add to what what we're talking about, if you want to throw your names down into the Google Doc and uh, with a kind of pick me, pick me, and I will uh, try and call out the people who want to stay engaged. Um, one of the the themes that's coming through in the questions I'm seeing now um, is is about local food and local energy. Um, and uh, there's quite a few comments I'm seeing around um, the uh, local food production and uh, there's some interesting stuff around funding models. And Charles, I know you, uh, you've you added a comment here about uh, the session you're involved in with some uh, work from Bruce Smith. Uh, and I'm wondering maybe if you and Hamilton can kind of talk a little bit more about your experience in that area. Um, Charles, if you want to start off, that would be great. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Bruce Smith's work is fascinating. Now, he is out in uh, western North Dakota and uh, Montana. And the thing that makes their project out there work is the economics. If you look at uh, the food that they produce, they produce largely, uh, you know, large volume, huge mega farms. All the food they produce gets loaded on trains, uh, gone across the U.S. Uh, to Duluth by rail, put on a boat, hauled somewhere else and processed, and then brought back to them, largely on rail or by truck, at which point they consume it. And when you look at the economics of this, they wind up paying the absolute uh, least amount. They actually get the least amount for their commodities of anyone in the nation because commodities are traded on a global market. Uh, and they have to basically subtract these huge transportation costs from wherever they get. So they're getting, at the end of the day, very little for their commodities. On the other hand, by the time everything gets processed and shipped all the way back to them, they're paying huge amounts of money. So it didn't take uh, much uh, for them to start to make these local food models uh, very uh, financially lucrative for them. Uh, they were able to cut out basically that whole transportation chain and that whole uh, processing chain and do those things locally and make them make them work financially. Now, for other places across the country trying to do this, the economics don't always help. If you can go to Walmart or you can go to, uh, you know, the local big box retailer and get food brought in from South America uh, or, you know, chicken packaged in China, it's pretty hard to compete uh, on a price level with that, you can say, well, we're organic or we offer, a, you know, a different type or a different quality of food. And I think there's a good argument to be made there. But at the end of the day, the economics does make it very, very difficult. 
I, I don't have a magic solution for that except to simply say that if you step back and look at the world, the world is changing right now. It's changing dramatically, and it's becoming much more localized. The cost of energy is going up. Uh, all indications are that the cost of energy, particularly oil, is going to go up much, much higher in the, in the near future. Uh, those changes make uh, the relative economics of transportation much different. And for those places that can get a toehold now uh, amongst the, you know, if we're going to call them the believers or the choir, if you can get a toehold now of a local uh, ag movement going, uh, the economics are going to shift in your favor, I believe, and those things are going to be able to be expanded uh, a lot easier then than they can now. So, Hamilton, I don't know if you want to take it from there. Sure, sure. And I also heard Bruce's presentation and, and would absolutely point to that as a great example. Um, the only thing I would just add is, you know, our model has been to be a nonprofit organization and doing youth training while producing, um, in this instance, local fuel, but also we're actually starting to develop in local directions around local food as well. And that that is just a model for folks to look at as a way of sustaining it because we're able to combine grant dollars, we're able to get some workforce training dollars, which in some instances is Department of Labor dollars that come through, um, and, you know, and then, of course, so that we're not from the beginning totally reliant on, you know, the profit we can produce in a startup business to be able to keep it going, so that we're able to basically, uh, you know, um, subsidize it in the first few years to help it get off the ground. So that may be one model folks might want to look at um, is this sort of nonprofit model that also combines some youth training pieces, and it allows us to bring a number of different streams of funding to bear to support this. And everybody, of course, is interested from a nonprofit perspective in, you know, something that they can make an investment in once and they feel like it's going to start to generate enough revenue that they're not going to need to keep, you know, giving the same money year after year to keep it alive. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. Um, the sustainability of the businesses um, is, is something that uh, I think, Chuck, you touched on in Hamilton, you really drew out there, um, being able to set up local businesses um, for sustainable futures. Um, who, sorry, is, is someone, can someone, everyone check that their phones are on mute um, so we can, we can all hear. Um, the issue of sustainability, Chris, I think um, you can probably add a, a huge amount to that conversation with your work. Um, do you want to kind of take us away on that for a little bit? I would. Um, I think it's important for everyone to, to know uh, some basic information uh, that, that I, I, and I'll actually I think I might add a diagram to the Google Doc in a few minutes. Um, there's some fundamental theories about economic development um, that I think we, we all kind of need to, to grapple a little bit and we all struggle with at some point. Um, first and foremost, the ways that we as um, local economies can really work for work toward developing the local economy um, is to not get sidetracked in developing retail-only uh, economies. And one of the, the basic constructs of economic development really is looking externally and actually selling your, your, your products from someplace else. And I added the link in the Google Doc about a, 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 a group out of the UK that actually has a pretty good depiction of, uh, and they use this model of a, of a, bu a, a bucket uh, for the model that shows what an economy looks like. Um, and basically what it, it, they're saying is that uh, if you look at the model, um, an empty bucket kind of represents our, our economy. Um, money, or they use the analogy of water flowing into the bucket, determines the overall community wealth. Um, and if you are adding a tremendous amount of um, money into the economy from an external um, area, then that really shows that you, you know, your bucket is filling up rapidly and uh, you're doing very well. You know, community wealth is doing is uh, is growing. Um, as 
retail industry uh, is something that's swimming around inside of the bucket. Um, and basically, if you're passing money back and forth between um, retail industry, that's great. Uh, it adds some uh, local jobs, but it's not actually doing anything to grow that economy. Um, the empty this uh, bucket analogy also uses uh, if there are holes in your bucket, which is basically people that are spending money externally, um, things like maybe buying goods and services from someplace else, uh, you know, Walmart, uh, Amazon.com, you know, places where you're not spending your money locally, well, then uh, it, it, you've got an outflow of money to, from your economy. And so you need to develop a good balance um, between bringing money in and the money that flows out uh, of that. Uh, so some of the strategies that can be done are certainly um, to bring more money into the economy, you focus on developing business and bringing it uh, into your community um, by you know, adding additional um, uh, business dollars, uh, growing trade areas of local businesses. But the other uh, uh, method that traditional chambers of commerce across the country have really been successful doing is plugging some of those leaks and helping to keep that dollar local. So I think some of this discussion about local food and so forth is definitely a fantastic tool to keep some of that money local. Um, but I think it definitely needs to be augmented by helping, especially if you're in a commodity-based agricultural community um, like much of the country, helping those local food producers find ways that they can become uh, competitive, develop a niche product, a value-added agricultural product, um, and to export that product outside of their geopolitical boundary um, by finding markets where those value-added products might be uh, purchased uh, with, the most, with the greatest likelihood. Uh, and so for a small town, uh, even if it's uh, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, the Internet is a really good opportunity for uh, folks like that to sell their products uh, somewhere else, which is... Uh, a big proportion of what we've been doing with our local businesses is helping them uh, find ways to sell their products online. Thanks. Bonnie, this is – hey, Bonnie, this is Chuck. Could I add a little bit yeah. to that? You know, I, I think it's – this is Chuck. I, I think it's important because a lot of small towns – uh, economic development approach, uh, kind of the standard approach, is to go out and get some type of grant or loan or combination of the two to build uh, more infrastructure. Let's put in an industrial park. Let's run sewer and water, more roads out, uh, on the periphery of town. And what ends up happening more times than not, because the goal is here, well, we're going to get a, a large manufacturer or someone who will come in and kind of save our community. What happens more often than not is you wind up with a strip mall uh, or, uh, you know, some other type of retail establishment uh, that usually becomes uh, a replacement for something that you already have in your community. Even if you get that large manufacturer, you know, are the rare place that does it, uh, you're still subject to the volatility of that particular business. What a successful small town can do right now today without spending any money is go to their major businesses and say, how do we do two things? How do we help you uh, grow bigger? How do we help you sell more of what you do? And then how do we help you consume more of the of the raw materials and products and services that you utilize, how do we get you to do more of that locally? And if you can do those two things with those key businesses you have in your community, that's the toehold that you need to start growing the whole system. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. That's, uh, that's uh, a really great value out there. Um, the, uh, the the comment that is getting a lot of traction on the Google Doc here, um, I think this came from Steve Beck. Um, Steve, do you want to make a comment uh, and join in here um, about this question that you added around your community in Brandon? Um, I had actually had two. You mean the last one about short-term versus long-term? Yeah, so in terms of the, the conversation we're having here on sustainability, um, I think that the, the question that you're, you're talking about here is that uh, the, the long-term kind of 
long haul sustainability option isn't uh, isn't really kind of getting traction, uh, and you need, There's a lot you need of to people. be able to show results immediately. Yeah. Right. Do you right. want to talk a little about that? Well, I'm I'm finding I have just been in this job a little more than two months, um, and I'm a local a local business owner in Brandon who opted to see some kind of change in the community. And what I'm what I'm finding is there's there's and I had said something earlier in another post that there's haves and have nots in the community, and the haves are people who can weather these kinds of downturns and and their position to do that. And then there's a ton of people. Brandon and the the Rutland County area in Vermont is a very um, it's a poor community. We've lost two of our biggest manufacturers in the last two years due to a lot of of this global upheaval. And my, I mean, people say, you know, we're, 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 the town is focusing on the arts. We're known as the art and soul of Vermont. And people, are, people think the arts are going to save them. And people are screaming at me, I don't care. I don't want another artist. I want a manufacturer in this town who's going to give me a job. And I'm like, well, I can work on that, but that is going to take a long time. So we've got to focus on what we already have. And how can we grow that? So it's just, it's a really, it's an interesting kind of position to be in to see how people are are really upset and really frustrated and are really scared about the direction the country is going in based on the fact that they don't have, they're not, they're seeing their opportunity, I think, to move into that being a have as slipping away, and I think they're really, really afraid. And I believe they are the backbone of what has made uh, Vermont the special place that it is. Bonnie, can I come uh, on? Sorry, did someone else want to make a comment on that? Or was that a non-muted phone? Um, I think the, the one of the really interesting things that you draw out there, Brandon, is the... Uh, the element of fear that people are, are facing in in a volatile economy. Um, Charles or or Chris or, or Hamilton, do I? Which one of you do you feel the how, best? I guess. To talk I guess. About how that? can you get? How can you get people to realize that by robbing by robbing from Albany, New York, and trying to bring somebody to Brandon, it, you know. Then somebody's going to rob from Brandon and take it to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I mean, it's it's it, how can you make people in positions of authority and power and policy in Montpelier or any other state capital realize that this is bogus, it's bunk, and and we are in such deep doo doo in this country with our reliance on the global economy, et cetera, et cetera, that. Why can't we just focus on what we had a hundred years ago? And that sounds that sounds very backward thinking, but I think it's very forward thinking in that it makes people realize it's all right here, and let's work to make it work right here. How can sure. how can we make people change the whole legislative process to be more local economy oriented and put that money there rather than trying to drag somebody from you know, from Colorado or bring tourists, you know, with the price of gasoline going up, you know, which it will inevitably, to come to ski to Vermont or come to the least. Sure. So, Chris, I know you had um, had some of these thoughts in the post that you wrote for the, the blog here. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and I think your, your point is well made, Steve. Um, the I think one thing that we need to be aware of is that um, any business that can virtually locate itself or is able and willing to move from one community to community to another um, is essentially focused on one thing, and that's being a commodity business. Um, a commodity business can traditionally locate itself wherever it is possible and is usually focused on bottom line, and the bottom line being it's just it's, this is the cheapest place to do business. Here in Pueblo, Colorado, and just like many other places across the country, um, we've had uh, half-cent sales tax that allows 
our traditional economic development folks to go out and dangle a really big carrot to commodity-based industries to help them, to ask them to try and move the Pueblo. Usually that's on the auspices of, hey, Pueblo is the cheapest place to do business. Oh, and by the way, come to Pueblo, we'll give you a free land, some tax abatements, we'll build a building for you, yada, yada, yada. Um, what we're finding, though, is that what happens if that business actually comes to town? Well, they do a couple of things. Number one, they pay low wages. Uh, they're focused on, on, on making money, and that's the majority of it. They don't necessarily have strong ties to the community, so they're not really devoted in, uh, devoting a lot of their, their energy into making the community a better place. Uh, secondly, uh, let's say they come to town, especially what we've been finding in Pueblo, is well, what happens if the local economy improves? Well, these businesses are the first ones to leave. With the advent of the Internet also, um, we're finding that it's much easier for any of these commodity-based businesses to move someplace else. Because it's, uh, and someplace else being China, India, Mexico, and so forth. It's easier than ever for a business to pick up and move. So I think we're, what, what the key point to that is, is by looking at the businesses within your community, if they are solely focused on commodities and uh, bottom line, you know, you're in a world of work. So I think the traditional manufacturing-based economy um, has some problems with it. One thing that we are focusing on doing, however, is working with our local businesses to help them identify what they do, what they're doing here in Pueblo that's unique um, and has a niche that makes it unique worldwide. And uh, some of those products uh, or services that these companies are offering may not seem very unique to them, uh, but we are helping them to identify, you know, this product that you're developing is pretty hard to find. And you know, finding the customers that would potentially buy a unique product uh, versus a commodity-based product have been really key to keeping uh, these core um, businesses that are doing exports here in, in Pueblo. Does that help? Chris, that touches on a, a really interesting point around local distinctiveness and really celebrating the... Right the uniqueness of, of your place and your, your economy. One one question that uh, has come up a couple of times is around um, buying local schemes and um, kind of raising the profile of uh, the local economy. Um, and Hamilton, I want to throw this to you. Having created um, the project that you're working on, and a lot of that I know involves uh, building partnerships with local business and really kind of creating almost an industry around the products that you're selling. And I wonder if you could talk a little about the kind of celebration of the local distinctiveness um, that you're you're really pushing with your project. Sure. And I think there's probably a lot of other folks, and I've seen some of these resources have some good models of local currencies and other stuff. For us, I mean, for us, what's been key has been you know, making sure that there's an, an easy victory and a good story to tell for everybody. So for the restaurant owners, for the, you know, the donors, for the grants that we're getting and those who are putting money in, you know, that they, so, you know, even going back to what Steve was saying, it's interesting that one of the first things we did that really seemed to work was we just put together a brief video about the project so that people could really feel um, some sense of accomplishment. And we did that even before we were actually up and running in terms of selling the fuel and all that. So there was at least something people could get their heads around or show people to talk about it. So just one thing to think about is that, that early kind of victory and how people can feel like they're on a winning, you know, this is a winning horse or something of that sort. Um, in terms of the, you know, I mean, the – Local, you know, I mean, having um, restaurants and local, you know, fleet managers and others buy into the project. Um, I mean, for us, I think, you know, we get this unique social mission that makes it easier. And basically the way we do it is we'll give it to you for the same price you'd be paying otherwise or cheaper, plus you get, so you know, this added social mission. And for us, especially with the first few, they get the distinction of being – 
you know, all over the publicity as we launched the project and as, you know, in its early stages of being able to say they were the first, you know, uh, local trash company on board to fuel their trucks on biodiesel or they're the first, you know, McDonald's is now on board and they can put their little sign in the window and come to the press conference and boast of, you know, being a, a local, locally organization that supports the local community, which is kind of ironic for a company like McDonald's. But so, you know, we've been fairly, um, um, I mean, we have, we've been open and doing our best to figure out how everybody from a McDonald's to, you know, the local unique, um, you know, corner restaurant that serves soul food and could only serve this menu in New Orleans and nowhere else, that either of those companies can engage and have their needs met and, you know, have the story be of value to them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, do any of you uh, have some good examples on kind of first steps or uh, fifth steps or uh, good good ways that you can recommend to help uh, get communities started down this path? Um, Hamilton, why don't you kick off with... I'm sorry, who did I cut off? That was just Chris, funny. Um, to, tell you, to tell you the truth, when we first started our economic gardening program, um, honestly what it really boiled down to was just going out and knocking on a couple doors and starting conversations. Um, what we ended up doing is just went, we walked down uh, Main Street in town and, start, and just went uh, to business owners that would, that would uh, say hi uh, and started a conversation about, you know, what would help you as a local business um, be able to sell your product someplace else, uh, and is it viable? And one business that we found in particular um, has just blossomed and grown overnight um, because of just having that initial conversation. And one example was what we ended up doing is that they had a customer list um, here in, in Pueblo, Colorado, and they really believed that the majority of their, of their customers were here in Pueblo. In reality, we, we, we took their customer list using GIS and mapped it and showed where those customers were coming from. And it turns out the majority of their business uh, was actually coming from uh, Manhattan in New York. Uh, a real creative group of folks had found their website and were, were purchasing goods and services from them um, for what their product was. And uh, so we helped them to develop a marketing strategy that, re that reached out to that geographic area. And they've been held up uh, here in town locally as a really good example of, of um, using the Internet um, to their advantage and, and being a primary employer, um, bringing a substantial amount of money into the community. So I think, honestly, that the best, the best and easiest place to start is just start having conversations and um, find ways that, in a collaborative nature, um, your program and, and others uh, in the community can start working together and understanding how that how the local economics work um, and with the goal of bringing money in from someplace else, you can't lose. Fantastic. Uh, I think that's really inspirational for everyone. Uh, Hamilton, why, why don't you uh, tell us how you guys got started? I'm sorry, say again, Bonnie? Do you want to give us a... Sure. Do you want to uh, give us an example of one of the ways you guys got started with your project? Um, yeah, well, um, we actually started by partnering with another organization. Well, we did two things. One is we went through a business planning workshop series um, that we found was available to really spend, you know, six to eight months, which mostly nonprofits don't do this, but we spent six to eight months and really did the market research started talking to everybody from the fuel users to the restaurants to, you know, we piloted a, a program with 15 um, older youth to test some of the training components out and really um, were able to, you know, fortunately dedicate some time to do that research before ever launching this to see if it would work and to really figure out the business model. Um, and along the way, of course, we found all kinds of like-minded folks that got really excited about it and wanted to see us succeed. So um, I think that was probably the, the biggest thing was that first year before we ever had 
you know, a, a, a drop of grease or, a, you know, any sign of a plant of biodiesel, you know, to produce that we were already, um, you know, doing that research. So I heard uh, start conversations, find existing resources, build partnerships, experiment, and energize supporters. It sounds like a great start for something like that. Yeah, if I could just add, you know, the I think what surprised me is as we were doing our research, we thought we would just do research and really just get people's answers to, you know, the question of, you know, at restaurants, we're asking them, what do they do with their old cooking oil? And, you know, uh, fleet managers, we're asking them, you know, where they're currently buying their diesel and if they're what they currently know about biodiesel. And it was amazing how much those things that seemed to us like they were just going to be fact-gathering and surveys were some of the – we found our greatest allies in that process. So, you know, you Every question you're out asking folks is an opportunity to get somebody else on your side um, beyond just getting the information you need from them. So there's a real element, and Chris, I think you you would back this up. I know I know Chuck would as well. That um, a lot of this is really about building community. Um, it's getting people engaged in your issues and um, and really getting people involved and caring about the things that you're doing, uh, which I think might bring us to the one of the first questions that was submitted, and I think something that I'd, I'd like to wrap up on before we go into uh, just a little bit about supporting the people on this call, uh, was a question around how to raise profile around local economies and how to really kind of get a broader community engaged in, in these issues. And so I'd be really interested to hear, I think, first from Chuck and then from anyone else on the call if uh, if you'd like to give us some examples about how you've done that in the past. This is the reason we started Strong Towns, because working for Community Growth Institute, you know, we could work uh, in the trenches, uh, but it was just a brutal education process to bring people up to speed with the, the idea that we really can't get something for nothing. We can't uh, throw some money at a grant or at an economic development uh, director and have them go out and lure, you know, the business that's going to save our community to town. What, what it really required was a, a lot more elbow grease, a lot more face time with people, a lot more time of getting, you know, boots on the pavement, and, and that's tough work at times. So we started Strong Towns because we we felt the first thing that needs to be debunked in order to get this conversation going is that our current economic development model works. People believe that if we can get a grant to, to build a street or if we can get a, a grant to build a sewer or if we can entice the business from a few communities over to come to our town, that somehow uh, we will be in a better position ultimately. The, the reality is is that whole system uh, it, it is completely a fraud. It is, it is a bankrupt system that doesn't work not only for the community that loses the development, but it ultimately doesn't work for the community that wins it either. And so we started a program called Curbside Chat where we go to any town in the country that wants us. Uh, we will come there. If you're outside of our immediate area, we try to get our expenses recouped. But but we're trying to start this conversation uh, so that people can understand that this model does not work and exactly why it doesn't work. Uh, and then, you know, once people realize that, then we can start having these intelligent conversations like the ones that Chris and Hamilton are leading here saying, okay, here's what does work. And this may not bring you instant gratification. This may not, you know, bring 100 jobs to the community next year. But if we look at a, a, a decade-long process of, of growth, this is going to build a strong, resilient local economy that you're all going to be proud of and, and better off for having. Fantastic. Um, Chuck, can you make sure that you've got a, a link in this document to, so people can go and find the Strong strong Towns and the curbside chat uh, online? Absolutely. Thanks, Bonnie. Great. Um, so I know we've, we've still got uh, about 30 or so people on the call. Um, I, I'd really like to try and open it up to a few more people to contribute to the conversation. Um, is there anyone else that would like to uh, brave the 
brave the airways and offer um, some experience on how they're kind of raising the profile of local economies in their towns. This is Bruce Seifer in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, Take it away, Bruce. We, in 1984, uh, we developed a strategic economic plan that engaged the community uh, in developing the plan, including statistically significant study, uh, talking with numbers of community leaders, gathering data, hiring an outside group to help look at all this information and, and have people talk frankly. Uh, from uh, their own perspective without worrying that somebody's going to look at them uh, with cross eyes and created a strategic economic plan was a 20-year plan that we were going to follow, which we ended up following for the last 26 years. And it was a multi-plan that looked at jobs and people, and it had a lot of elements that everybody's talking about, but it seemed to have worked where we basically have created trade groups where they didn't exist or neighborhood-based business groups, uh, business areas that were going through disinvestment and focused our energy on that, providing loan capital where none existed or technical advice where none existed or resource materials to let people know where things are at, so if they want to get information themselves, they can get it. And so we provided a range of services uh, to the business community, which also included, as somebody said before, is just basically, you know, go out, find, ask what people want, and then give it to them. Not very difficult. Uh, you do have the same problems with people who want to smoke stack chase and think that's the answer, but I think that if you have enough if you start helping the local business people, they become your allies and speak out that they're getting support and those other voices become muted. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes we've uh, developed uh, a market study to determine that was a market for a supermarket uh, and then put together a proposal and uh, provided the land and some, some support to get a supermarket in our inner city where there wasn't one, and, again, created a public process so people are involved in that process. So we provided, make sure the local schools are still strong so people want to live in a community if they, if they have a good school and they can have access to food. So it's a, the plan that we created 25 years ago, we followed pretty carefully. So to, to wrap up, we've created trade associations where there were none, where business people could talk amongst each other amongst each other and learn from each other or become leaders. Uh, we've uh, provided resources, whether it's technical or financial support, and also did the infrastructure work where people felt that it was necessary. So that kind of locally-based development approach has worked in our community. That's, uh, yeah, that sounds great, Bruce. I think uh, one of the strongest things that you said there was that you created a plan and then you followed it. Um, I think that, that's often a big challenge for, for people working in this space. Um, we are getting close to time for this call, uh, and I, I really want to take a few minutes at the end here to, to actually echo something that Bruce just mentioned there, um, which was uh, find out what people want and give it to them. Uh, and so right now, I'd, I'd like to throw it open to everyone that's still on the call. Um, at Community Matters, we're trying to get a sense of how we can keep conversations like this going. Um, what are the resources that, that you all out there in the community need um, to, to get support, to, um, to share resources, and to, to keep this conversation going? Um, and I'm going to open it up um, in, in the hope that we can kind of self-moderate ourselves on this call. Um, so please, please do join in and, uh, and throw some ideas at us so that we can start to, uh, to collect uh, some ideas around how we can continue to support you. Is it more calls like this? Is it uh, 
more resources that we can make available? Um, can someone uh, kick us off with, a, with an idea about how we can help to support you? Well, I think more um, examples of, uh, again, when we take a look at this economic gardening uh, technique, one of the techniques are to get the people from the communities around to select a topic and, and let the different practitioners talk about different problems and how we might uh, um, solve them for our communities or take new approaches for our communities. That might be a way, uh, uh, you know, some really structured ground amongst the different communities. Sorry, can you speak up a little? It's a little difficult to hear you. Uh, let me turn my speaker up there. Yeah, you know, if, if there are also ways for the different practitioners or different communities that can get together in a structured roundtable, much like one of the economic gardening techniques, um, to to be able to surface a problem and then talk about different ways, constructive ways of maybe... Um, uh, finding solutions or, or different examples of how uh, those problems might be solved. A lot of times it's small problems uh, that we can learn from other people's experience to get those solutions. So again, it's peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. Thanks, that's great. So peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, um, more techniques and tactics um, in the form of case studies maybe? Um, could be. Uh, and then it sounds like some um, some opportunities to really surface problems and, and have uh, roundtable discussions around how to solve them, so kind of crowdsourcing some solutions, perhaps. Anyone else? Um, I would say any kind of case studies, um, anything that shows models, anything that shows people what do you do next. What do you do next? That's, uh, right. that's what's the next thing. What's the next thing we should do in our um, even some kind of a database of, of solutions, a list of, of model projects that are working, some, somewhat like is already on this list today, um, and then also reaching out to government and elected officials. Um, I don't know how many of these conversations actually are including that group of people, uh, but. Uh, Anything we can do to help uh, bureaucrats become more creative is very helpful. That's a great one. So bringing some policymakers and government officials into the conversation. Who else? Hey, Bonnie. I know, I know you guys are full of ideas. Hey, Bonnie, this is yeah. Chuck. Hi, Chuck. I, I, wonder if, I wonder if we don't build, like, some type of a, a co-mentoring program. In other words... Let's get five cities that are interested in doing this. Uh, they want to take that first step. And let's just get them together in a group once a week or once every other week for an hour. I'd sit in on this. I think it would be great. And just say, okay, what's that first step that you've taken? And how do we walk you through that first step? And then how do we get you from the first step to the second step? Because I, I think so many times the problem is that we have such a hard time getting started it seems so daunting, but you just have to take that little first step, and it will lead you to the second and the third. And if, if maybe we could get the groups of, like, you know, five communities together that could go through the process together, kind of learn from each other, and have someone kind of, you know, in, in, a, in, a, low, in a, a low overhead kind of way guide them through or be that kind of professional that you can bounce ideas off of, that might be a way that Orton could keep this moving forward in a real strategic way. That's a great one, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, can I get a, a kind of sounding from people on the call? Um, we're, we're getting some really good ideas here. Um, I think the, the mentoring idea is a, a really strong one, um, kind of giving people the chance to experience these changes together and really learn and share from each other. Um, does a call like this help? Is, are people finding something like this useful as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think excellent. the mentoring idea is an excellent idea. Um, I, I do a lot of traveling around the country working with um, different sized communities, and um, I hear that all the time. It, it's like, well, you know, this large community has all these resources, but we really don't have them. 
you know, how can we make this happen in our community? And if they have a chance to have conversations with somebody who's already started doing that and has done something successful, um, that's like mentoring among others uh, who can learn from each other. And I'll say the mentoring, I love that idea because sitting on an EDC where we've talked about for years trying to do different things, everything from our economic development plan to getting out and having those conversations with businesses, there's something about if you have either a weekly or monthly call that then puts that to a sense of urgency because it just inevitably keeps on getting on the back burner with a group of volunteers and we're not getting anything done. And I think there's that concept of mentoring where you know you're going to have a call in a week that you're going to report or, you know, kind of look at what next step. And I think that creates that sense of urgency when you're working with the volunteer board. And That's I think great. community matters. One of the areas that, that um, could be really helpful is to even have a list of people who are willing to be mentors to mm -hmm. other communities so that they know they could go to the website and find people who um, have – have been there, done that, and are willing to help other people with it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, I get uh, a yay or nay from people. I'm going to ask you all to take yourselves off mute. Um, if we if we were to propose something like this, how many people on this call would be willing to commit to being part of something like that? I would. I would. I would. I would. I would. Yeah. That's what we want to hear. All right. All right, I'm going to hold you all to that. <laughs> um, uh, can I add a comment? Um, the, Please do. The idea of having something out there that is going to happen, and you might be one of five communities that would have this opportunity that Chuck mentioned, I think would help two ways. One is to have um, everyone um, – pulling together to be able to present their story and getting organized about what the different people are, how, how different people are seeing the elephant from their different perspectives. And um, I think that, that would just be great, even if you're not selected to be one of the communities that gets people thinking, oh, we could, we could have help if we, if we tell our story accurately. That's a really great point. Thank you. I would like to offer okay. an idea. All right, we'll, we'll take one last one. I just let you all know that we're going to keep this Google Doc open, so please throw whatever else you've got in here. We're we're just hitting five o'clock, so I'm going to wrap up after this comment. So please what, take what away. If, what if you were to uh, have a weekly podcast? It would allow you to put the organization behind the the half an hour or hour time slot, and provide some video uh, input as well to go along with the talk to illustrate. Uh, the other piece that might go along with that is uh, I think there's a need to stratify the audience or community size. Uh, Pueblo, Colorado at over 100,000 and Brandon at probably less than five. Four. Uh, have different uh, different ways of Deep. looking at this problem. Yep. yep. That's a fantastic idea. Um, the, the podcast is a really novel idea. We like that a lot. Um, all right. So we've hit 501. Um it's my duty now to uh, to wrap it up. Um, and thank you all for, for taking the time to join in the conversation here. It's uh, been fantastic to have your input um, and to source so many amazing questions. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you will uh, stick around and, and add some more thoughts. Uh, if there are questions that are in this document right now that you feel like you can add some experience or insight to, please throw down your comments. Um, and then uh, early next week, we will have these wrapped up and distributed to everybody uh, so that you've got a record of the conversation here. We're also, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've been recording this, so we will make that available as well. Um, and stay tuned, because uh, we're really interested in, um, in taking this feedback so, and, and keeping this conversation going. I have um, a question. Yes. I have a question. If you if you were made aware of this by getting a an email forwarded to you <clears throat> from somebody else, and you re, you responded to get onto the you know participate, you have yes. an email address, and that I'll automatically get updates and things will come to me directly. 
yes, I believe so. You will definitely, you've been emailed the information about the call, so we have right. your contact details. Please. Okay, good. Um, we'll, we'll make sure that we include you. <laughs> um, all right, so everyone, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to sign off now. Thank you to, to Chuck, to Chris, and to Hamilton for leading the conversation. Um, and, and please stay tuned and, and stay involved because uh, we really value all of your insight. It's been great to have you on the call. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much.